If you would, take your uh, Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 16. Uh, there are pew Bibles available to you uh, in, in, the, in the pew rack. You're welcome to use those uh, as we read from this part of God's Word. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help this morning? Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Would you give us eyes to see that we might behold wonderful things in your law? And we pray that uh, in all of this, you would instruct our hearts, build us up in faith, equip us for every good deed, and in all things, help us to see Jesus. But we pray in his name. Amen. Many of you will know the story of Elizabeth Elliot. As probably some of you have read her book, Through Gates of Splendor, or perhaps seen the, the film that was based upon that book. She's, she's probably most well known for that episode of her life, though she had a, a, an extensive ministry in the work of missions and in encouraging and recruiting others to serve God in missions. Um, but maybe a lesser known work of hers is this book called These Strange Ashes. She wrote this book a little bit later in life about the first year of missionary service that she engaged in. The 
before she was married to Jim Elliott, before she went to uh, uh, work with the Aka Indians in Ecuador with Jim and several other missionary couples. Uh, and in this book, she, she tells about this first year of missionary experience uh, in the jungles of Ecuador working among uh, a people called the Colorado Indians. In the story, she describes uh, how difficult this first year of ministry was. Each day was kind of consumed with mundane daily necessities, no grocery store, no modern conveniences, just out in the middle of the jungle having to provide for yourself in very difficult situations. She was there uh, as a Bible translator. That was her training, and so part of her task in this one year that she was there was to learn the language, the heart language of this people group, which was unwritten, to develop an alphabet for this unwritten language so that others could use this alphabet to then translate the Bible into this unwritten language that did not have the Bible uh, translated into it yet. As you can imagine, this is quite a task that she faced. And one of the ways that translators do this work is they try to find somebody uh, in the people group that they're working with who will help them understand the language, how things are pronounced, uh, different phrases, all the unique idioms that each people group uses so that she could kind of become a master of this language and help with Bible translation. It's a hard task. Uh, made even harder by all of the challenges that surrounded her. And at the beginning of this stage of her mission experience, uh, she, she says that she went into this, uh, this calling with certainty that God blesses obedience and that as long as she was obedient, God would give her great success in this work. I'll let you read the story for the rest of the details. It's an amazing story, but suffice it to say... She comes to the end of this first year of ministry deep in the heart of this jungle. The man who had connected with her and was helping her learn the language uh, was murdered in front of them and many others in this little area where they were staying. She was finally able to complete the work of developing an alphabet for this language, only to have all of her work packed away in a suitcase, stolen. It was never used. For the work of Bible translation. It was stolen and never recovered. And at the end of that, she, she looks back on this experience and kind of asks this question, what was it all for? I thought God blessed obedience. I thought that there was to be success because God had called me to this and I was surely obeying his call. Was it worth it to obey God's call only to suffer so much loss. I commend the book to you so you can kind of get the full picture of it. But it raises the question for us as well, how do we obey and follow Jesus in the hard places? How, how are we to do what Jesus calls us to do, to count the cost of following him, particularly when obedience to Jesus brings affliction, suffering, uh, loss in some way, or even just the conflict that comes in relationships? How do we follow Jesus faithfully when obedience brings hardship? In this passage this morning, we see Paul uh, doing just that. We see Paul counting the cost of following Jesus, being willing to follow Christ, 
even when he knows what that obedience in large part will cost him, that he will face certain affliction, even imprisonment. Beyond that, he doesn't know. And as we look at Paul's situation from this, we learn to do the same. We learn how to count the cost of following Jesus into the hard places. And so I want to encourage you as we walk through this passage to be, to be thinking about your own lives, to be thinking about the hard places where Jesus has placed you and, and how he may be calling you to obedience in those places and how you might be encouraged this morning to count the cost as well. Just for some context of this passage, Luke doesn't tell us this in the book of Acts, but we know from Paul's other letters uh, that as he completes this third missionary journey, part of what he's doing is he's been gathering a relief offering for impoverished Christians in Judea. And he is determined to take this offering from Gentile churches back to Jerusalem to serve Jewish Christians there as a way of showing the unity of the church, both Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. That helps us at least in part to explain Paul's determined uh, resolve to go to Jerusalem. God has called him to this task, and he's called him to take this relief offering to Jerusalem. And really from this point on in Acts, the narrative slows down quite a bit. And the focus largely becomes Paul's journey to Jerusalem, his imprisonment in Jerusalem, and his eventual transfer to Rome for trial before Caesar. Everything kind of slows down in these last eight chapters of the book. So that's some of the context of what we find in our passage this morning. Paul learns here to count the cost of obedience to Jesus, knowing that obedience will mean for him certain suffering. I think it's important to say that counting the cost is not just simply calculating the risk. We're good at that. You know, is this going to hurt me? Is this going to benefit me? And then we weigh those options out. That, that's not exactly what counting the cost means, I think we'll see from Paul's example. Counting the cost of following Jesus is about knowing the risk, uh, knowing what it may cost us to follow him faithfully and being willing to do it regardless of committing ourselves to following Jesus into those hard places because he is worthy. And we see how we ought to do this in three ways from our passage. First, we see that we can count the cost in the strength that comes from fellowship in the body of Christ. We count the cost in the strength of fellowship uh, uh, within the body of Christ. We can't do it alone. And God gives us one another in fellowship to help us count the cost of obedience and therefore to be faithful. We see this fellowship all throughout uh, this, this passage, as we've seen in lots of other places in the book of Acts, that Paul is actively seeking out other Christians as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Some of these travel descriptions are interesting in the book of Acts, and we might be willing to kind of skip over them like a, long, uh, like a grocery list, you know, go get eggs, go get bacon, go get milk, go get orange juice, check, 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 check. And it's almost like Luke is just saying he went here, he went there, he went here, he went there. And it'd be easy to just kind of go over that very quickly and not pause to ask, why is Luke telling us this? What's the significance of including these details? And I think part of the significance is to show us how at every point, what does Paul do? He seeks out other believers. Uh, notice in verse 4, they arrive in Tyre, which is kind of on the Mediterranean coast, 
west of, uh, kind of northwest of Jerusalem. Look at the maps in your Bible and see where this is, if that's helpful for you. And what do they do when they get to Tyre in verse 4? They seek out the disciples. It's a deliberate search for other believers in this area, many of whom who would have been there uh, as a result of the scattering of persecution from Acts chapter 8. Many would have been there possibly as a result of Jesus' own ministry in this area that you can read about in the Gospels. Either way, however they got there, Paul seeks them out for fellowship. Notice, too, back in the beginning of verse 1, it's kind of hidden in the translation in verse 1, but we notice the hardship from Paul's departure from the elders of Ephesus, whom he had just spent time with in Miletus. When it says, we had, when we had parted from them, that word for parted kind of has the idea of tearing away, uh, like ripping a Band-Aid off even. This has been, um, I think, one of those ways that shows us Paul's love for the church, his deep companionship with other believers along the way, and, and how difficult it is for him to be separated from them, how valuable this fellowship was to Paul. He's no super apostle. He's not a superman who can just kind of go at his own. He needed the strength that comes from fellowship with other believers. Notice as well in verse 5, all of these other believers feel the weight of what Paul is doing. They know that he's going to Jerusalem. They know that he's going to face imprisonment when he gets there. They even urge him out of love given by the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem because they know what's coming. And yet, even though Paul insists on going, they still offer their loving support. Notice verse 5. They don't end in a disagreement. They don't, they don't say, okay, Paul, you're making your choice. You go on your own way. We're not going to have any part of this. No. They go with him. They go outside the city with their wives and their children. The whole group, the whole Christian community gathers around Paul. They leave with him to the shore where he's about to catch his other boat to head to Caesarea. And feeling the weight of this task, they kneel down on the beach and pray with him. Luke is encouraging us that as we count the cost of faithfulness to Jesus, that part of what we need is the involvement of other Christians in our lives. And it's always mutual. It's always a two-way street. We serve one another. We minister to one another. And we, we receive benefit from the ministry of others to us. A disciple is always both a learner and a teacher. And we're always walking side by side with one another as we follow Jesus. But sometimes we walk side by side in different ways. Consider your own relationships within the body of Christ here at Filbert or among other Christians with whom you have connections. Sometimes there are those who, who are ahead of you. They have more experience, more maturity in the Christian life. They follow Jesus for longer than you have, and you can benefit from their investment in you. You benefit from that discipleship, that fellowship, that fellowship in Christ there's maturity in life and in spiritual life. Sometimes there's those who are behind you, those who are less mature in the faith, those who are new in the faith and are in need of you to come alongside them and help them learn how to read the Bible, how, how to pray, what life in God's church looks like, how to, how to live as a Christian in daily life when sometimes it's really hard to do that. You might be 
one who has uh, experience that you can help another Christian learn how to follow Jesus faithfully. And then sometimes there are those who are beside us, those ahead of us, those behind us, and then those beside us. Maybe you're in the same boat, same stage of life. You're raising small children, or you've got young adults in college that you're caring for, or all of your children are gone out of the home, and you're dealing with that transition in life. Whatever it may be, you've got those who are right beside you, same stage of life, many of the same challenges. You can encourage one another and carry one another in prayer through those parts of life. We, we need, whatever, wherever you find yourself, whatever the nature of your relationship, we need that relational involvement within the body of Christ. And it's a relational involvement that goes beyond uh, the, you know, the large group gathering that we enjoy on Sunday mornings. If I can put it this way, that this gathering of worship, which is of primary and utmost importance as we exalt God and hear from his word in the midst of worship, this, this gathering can't bear the full weight of ministry in the body of Christ. You, you can't do all the things that the New Testament calls us to do if this is where your gathering is only. If we're to love one another and serve one another, encourage one another as long as it is called today, if we're to help one another put sin to death and, and live for God and follow Jesus faithfully into the hard places, then, then it's got to take place within this gathering as well as in smaller gatherings as you have opportunities to know one another through Bible study, through small groups, through youth group. You gather with other youth and encourage one another to follow Jesus in that hard stage of life. Or perhaps even as you just meet one-on-one with somebody and ask, how can I pray for you? How can we serve one another? You don't need to wait on the session or the committees of the church to establish a program for you to do that. You don't. Uh, You can seek that out. You can serve one another in whatever ways God has called you to do that. Luke here reminds us that we can't do everything, really we can't do anything on our own. We need Jesus, we need one another, and he has placed us in the body of Christ so that we might find strength through fellowship so that we can count the cost and follow Jesus faithfully. Not only do we see the benefit of fellowship, but we also see Paul and the others seeking wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit as they sought to count the cost of following Jesus faithfully. Now, where do I get that? Uh, There's lots of places leading up to this point in Acts where the Holy Spirit is clearly and explicitly leading Paul and leading the other believers uh, by his wisdom and by his guidance. I think it's important to note here that The Bible gives us everything that God tells us we need to know, to know his promises, to believe his promises, to live a godly life for his glory. But it would be a mistake to approach the Bible as if it's, uh, you know, like a football playbook. You know what I mean? Okay, if this happens, then here's the exact set of things that you need to do in that specific situation. The Bible gives you everything you need to know, but it does not tell you everything. It gives you God's Uh, word. It gives you principles for living, but you face situations where you've got to have wisdom. You need guidance to figure out how do I apply what God has revealed in this situation? And we we see that in Paul. Paul knows that he has been called to go to Jerusalem. 
It's been building up since chapter 19. He's resolved to go to Jerusalem. He tells the elders in Ephesus, uh, the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he says, the Holy Spirit, I've been bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And I know that in every city and in Jerusalem, I face imprisonment and affliction. He knows that he is going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has revealed that to him and has told him it's going to be tough. You're going to face hardship when you do this. And yet the Holy Spirit has not said, don't go. And so you've got this kind of conflict going on between Paul and the disciples that he gathers with in this scene. In chapter in 21, verse 4, he's gathered with the d- disciples in Tyre. They know the same facts that Paul knows, that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to face imprisonment. And what do they do in verse 4? They tell him, they urge him, don't go. And then when he gets to Caesarea and he spends time with Philip and his prophesying daughters and Agabus, this other prophet, shows up from Judea and takes Paul's belt in kind of good Old Testament prophet fashion, gives an object lesson, wraps his hands and feet in Paul's belt and says, hey, who owns this belt? This is what's going to happen to you. And the disciples see that and they urge Paul, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, why are they doing that? The Holy Spirit has clearly said, you're going to Jerusalem. And they seem to think that's not a good idea. Don't go. There's a conflict in how you apply the wisdom of God to this particular situation. They don't want Paul go, to go probably because they see that Paul is valuable. Uh, here's this amazing man called by God to pioneer in places where the gospel has not been heard. Uh, he certainly causes a stir everywhere he goes, preaching the resurrection of Jesus and establishing church. He's, an, he's a gifted teacher. He's building up the body of Christ. They're looking at it and they're saying, this is a loss. If you go to Jerusalem and you end up in jail, you're probably going to die. And that certainly can't be what God wants you to do. And notice Paul's response. As they seek the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Paul looks at them in verse 13. He answers, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew he was going to suffer. The disciples knew he was going to suffer, but they didn't know what to do in response to this. There was a disagreement, but they seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and they finally come to terms, and they say, let the will of the Lord be done. They encouraged one another in this, and in that way supported Paul as he counted the cost of faithfulness to Jesus. Not only does he find strength and fellowship, wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit, but finally, and and perhaps most importantly, Paul shows us that we count the cost of faithfulness to Jesus by finding our hope in him, the one who gave himself for us. We count the cost by seeing the cost that Jesus paid on our behalf out of love for us. This is not about grinning and bearing it when life is tough, just kind of tightening your belt and getting ready for what's going to come your way. This is not about self-reliance and kind of building yourself up for something difficult. This is about the love of God in Jesus Christ compelling us to evaluate life and to say, whatever he calls me to, he is worthy. And whatever the outcome of obedience to Jesus, it is worth it 
Because Jesus has given us an unshakable, unchanging hope through his life and his death and his resurrection. Paul deeply and intimately knew the hope that comes from the gospel. Of all people, he knew it well. This one who had persecuted the church had stood by holding the the coats of those who had picked up rocks and thrown them at Stephen, one of the first deacons, and killed him for his testimony to the risen Jesus. Paul stood by. He approved. Not only that, he sought out opportunities from the chief priests, the rulers in Jerusalem. Give me letters of authority so that I can go and find other Christians and drag them off to prison, that they might even die. Paul persecuted the way he hated Jesus. He hated the Jesus he thought he knew. And then he met Jesus. Jesus knocks him off of his donkey. Middle of the day, bright light blinds him, rescues him from darkness. Paul thought he was in the light and says to Paul through another disciple named uh, Ananias, says to Paul, I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul didn't look at that and say, but is it worth it? He didn't look at that and say, this is a bad deal. What you're giving does not equal what I'm giving. Paul looked at that and said, I've been crucified with Christ And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Paul looked at that and said, the love of Christ compels me so that whatever I face, I do it in the confidence of God's grace that he is holding me fast And whatever I have gained, I count as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and being found righteous in him. I die daily because I'm united with Jesus. And as I do that, I rise with him in new life. Paul was committed to counting the cost and following Jesus faithfully in the hard places because Jesus had given him hope, a hope that is unfailing, a hope that never disappoints. Knowing the love of Christ, he was compelled to love others for the sake of Jesus, even in the hard places of life. You catch this in Paul's words where he says, I'm willing to be in prison and even to die for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. How can I not offer him to offer to him all that I am when he has given to me so much? His own life in death, bearing my guilt upon his cross. Paul's obedience in this situation is a mirror image response to the greater obedience of Jesus in our place. You see, Paul counted the obedience, he counted the cost of obedience because he saw, and he counted it worthy to obey Jesus in the hard places because he saw that Jesus had counted the cost of obedience to his father for us. In agonizing prayer, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus felt the weight 
Jesus saw the cost that was coming to him at his cross. He felt it so deeply, we're told, that his sweat was like drops of blood. So intense was the stress and agony that Jesus was facing as he considered the cost of the cross. And he says at the end of that struggle, yet not my will, but your will be done. He knew all that the cross meant. The physical pain of execution that even the thieves on either side of him experienced, he knew that cost. But far deeper still, he knew the cost of becoming sin in our place and all of the horror that that meant. For you, for you and me, we don't quite grasp the horror of sin because we're not perfectly holy. But Jesus is. And he was to become the very thing his father could not look upon. Paul says he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the cost. He counted it. He saw the horror of sin that would be placed upon him. He understood as he faced the cross the sheer ferocity of God's wrath against sin. The weight of enduring hell upon the cross for us, for you, for Paul. He counted the cost. He saw the cost of that mysterious separation for the only time in all eternity between the Father and the Son, Jesus condemned in our place. Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that's what was coming. He looked at it and he counted the cost as worthy for love of you. Jesus did not run from the cross because his love for his people compelled him to submit all the way to obedience, even to the point of death on a cross. And he rose again in triumph, having counted the cost and considered it worthy, all for love of his people, for love of you. Paul knew that deeply and intimately. And when he saw the cost that was being asked of him to go to Jerusalem, to face imprisonment, even to die, possibly, which he didn't, but he didn't know. He knew that it was suffering and affliction that awaited him. And he said, I'm willing to die even for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. But if you want to know a love that never fails, if you want to know the freedom of forgiveness for sins and a hope that never disappoints, that brings you all the way home where there is no sin, where all is joy and peace and love in the presence of our Father. If you want to know that, the kind of love that enables you to say, whatever comes, I will obey. It is worth it. He is worthy. Then, then Jesus bids you to come. Find rest in him. Even saying that his, his yoke is easy. His burden 
is easy when we take it upon ourselves because he has borne the greatest burden for us. We place a high value on personal comfort and avoiding things that are uncomfortable. Uh, And yet as Christians, Jesus calls us to count the cost, to see the hope that he has given us, to find strength and fellowship with one another and seek the guidance and wisdom of his Holy Spirit so that we might count the cost and follow him faithfully. Elizabeth Elliot, after writing this book on her first year of ministry and, of course, writing through Gates of Splendor, describing ministry among the Aka Indians and the uh, tragic death of her husband and several other men serving with them at the end of the spear uh, from those, the tribe that they were serving, uh, she reflected back on that first year and, and kind of tries to give an answer to that question. What was it all for? Uh, was it worth it? And she recognized that in obeying Jesus in those hard places and even suffering the loss of all of her work, that none of it was really wasted, that God gave her in that obedience, in that hard place, not success in ministry per se, not some one-to-one reward for what she had done, but he gave her himself and a deeper love for him above all else. So that when she married Jim Elliott and with the other missionary couples went into the jungle to serve these violent uh, natives there, and when her husband and all the other men died, she had already counted the cost before it even happened. And she knew that faithfulness to Jesus was worth it no matter what the outcome is. What are the hard places in your life now? Where is faithfulness costly and obedience hard? Take heart. Jesus has gone ahead of you through the hardest obedience of his cross. And he has come out on the other side in resurrection, victory, and glory, and power. And he has given you the body of Christ, a fellowship of believers from whom you can find strength to follow him faithfully in those hard places. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to teach you, to instruct you how to apply God's word to the specific situations where, especially where obedience is difficult. And he has told us that in the end, all that we give away, all that we lose in this life for the sake of his name, he will return unto us some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, But none of us will arrive in the presence of Jesus and say it wasn't worth it. But we will all behold him face to face and say this was far more than we deserved and far more than we expected because he is faithful. Would you pray with me?